This is my journey, inspired one story at a time. A library of leaders was created. It began as a journey to learn. As time went on, it began to grow. All it needed was a platform, and this podcast was created to listen, to inspire, to share. I am a storyteller, and this is my journey. Welcome to another episode of Profiles in Leadership. I'm your host, Steve Anderson, and today's guest is Jamie Flinchbaugh. After nearly three decades of coaching at every level, from entry-level employee to experienced CEOs of multi-billion dollar corporations, Jamie is an author and advisor and has worked with over 300 companies around the world in lean transformation, including Intel, Harley-Davidson, Crayola, BMW, and Amazon. His book, The Hitchhiker's Guide to Learn, has been used to, uh, for over a decade as an introduction to lean behaviors and leadership. In his new book, People Solve Problems, The Power of Every Person, Every Day, Every Problem, Flinchbaugh shifts the conversation and argues that organizations focus too much on problem-solving tools and templates and miss other critical elements that make a greater difference, getting the right behaviors and building the right capabilities. He is the founder of Jay Flinch, which collaborates with leaders and their teams to bridge capability, strategic, cultural, and systems gap. He is a wealth of knowledge and experience and really does understand what uh, today's businesses really need. We discuss a lot about culture, uh, what coaching is, and what businesses need to do in a post-pandemic environment. So let's uh, get right into it and then talk with Jamie. Jamie, thanks for being on the program today. I really appreciate your time. Thanks for having me, Steve. So give us a little idea about uh, your company, uh, Jay Flinch, uh, uh, what that does for business leaders. Well, it's, it's a pretty simple model, and, and uh, in part, it's, it's my, my effort to uh, uh, adjust to a, a new world where I didn't travel quite as much. But uh, I basically do three things. Uh, I coach leaders one-on-one, really help them with not just their leadership, but their strategy, their problem solving, their culture shaping stuff. Uh, I do some advisory work where I'm I'm helping teams of people on some bigger complex challenges. And then I have a a handful of workshops that I also do that are, they're they're virtual, uh, a combination of synchronous and asynchronous and application oriented and so, so those are the, the sort of three things I do, and mostly helping uh, build uh, better systems, better capabilities, better cultures to help uh, with uh, building a more scalable, resilient organization. And over your career, you've worked with some really major, large companies that we're all familiar with their names. Yeah, I, I've worked in the, the food industry uh, with semiconductors, with you know, distribution, financials, so fidelity to Amazon, to Eminem Mars, Intel, and a whole lot of stuff in between. So, you know, not not just big companies, but those are obviously the ones more recognizable. Uh, and I've, I've learned a lot from the variety of my engagement. Yeah. And, you know, my experience has been that, that people are often looking for the, for tools or formulas to become better leaders. But 
It's really not all about that, is it? I mean, it's uh, there, there's a lot more to it. There's not necessarily a formula that you can kick into and uh, become a good leader. No, there isn't. You you got to do the work, uh, and and you've got to make it your own too. Um, so so this is why, uh, you know, if, if a leader's not really willing to do the work, if if they're looking for the shortcut, I probably won't even bother working with them. Um, most of the people I work with, they, they know it's hard. Uh, they need a thought partner, and 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 I, you know, I, I'm all fault for tools. There's nothing wrong with the tools, but that's not the magic. That's not what really makes a leader stand out, and uh, or makes an organization stand out. Yeah, and so when you know you do a lot with building culture. So uh, when when people solve problems, uh, uh, you know, how do they create a culture? Uh, where employees embrace that concept and just uh, you know look look uh, look with that mindset as far as solving problems and kind of leading from every level to do that. Yeah, so a, a culture is is really a, a product of our beliefs, our shared beliefs, and and those beliefs are shaped by our experiences. So what what a leader has to do is create the right experiences that in turn shapes the culture. Now. As we start to look at a you know problem solving culture, I, I really like to distinguish uh, the behaviors that a, that a leader is going after. And the reason I hone in on behaviors is that behaviors are observable. And if they're observable, uh, then a I can see my team do it or not do it, right, and recognize them or hold them accountable when we don't when we're not getting the right behaviors. And I can role model it. I can. I can role model it and others can see me doing it. And, and so for those factors, I like to get into to really observable behaviors. And so just in a, you know, an example of, of what, that, what that looks like, I, I think one of the most important behaviors around problem solving is deliberate learning. Um, you know, problem solving fundamentally is a learning activity. And you know, if we already knew the answer, then why am I doing problem solving? I should just execute what I know. Uh, you know, if if somebody uh, has, if their gas gauge on their car says empty, they don't get extra points for uh, knowing that the answer should be go to the gas station, right? That's just a, it's a known answer to a known problem, so you go do it. Problem solving is for when we don't know the answer, and and so that means how we engage in problem solving in the spirit of learning and closing knowledge gaps, that's that doesn't matter what tools you're using. That's that's the that's a behavior that makes the most out of problem solving. And when we're talking about building cultures, what do you mean uh, when you say like a, a lean culture? What does that mean to you in the business world? Yeah, so so lean is a I'll say a body of knowledge that uh, has has permeated a, a lot of different organizations, but also has no one particular, uh, one particular definition. Um, but, but I believe a lean culture is one that embraces problems, uh, that engages every employee um, uh, fundamentally in, in the spirit of continuous improvement and driving out waste. Uh, one that is highly focused on the customer um, that we sort of recognize and build a culture that our, our customers are, are how we get paid in the end and our job is to deliver value for those, those customers. Um, and one that, 
that sort of appreciates the value of consistency and standardization. Um, that it's not that we're static and, and standardized, but that we we recognize that building consistency in how we do things is sort of not just the key to consistent results, but also the key to more continuous improvement and problem solving. So those are just some sort of cornerstones of what a, a lean culture looks like. And you know, many organizations uh, uh, that you know, they, they pick up the term lean and they throw around tools, but in the end, those are the kind of fundamental things that we're after from a from from an end-to-end -end standpoint, right? From CEO down to frontline employee, all of those are mindsets or beliefs uh, that translate into the right behaviors that that can drive a good solid lean culture. Yeah, makes sense. And now I often see that leaders are just overwhelmed, or they just, or at least they think they are. How do you help someone out of that rut? Well, I'll say first is from a, from a good problem solving standpoint is it's important to understand why. Because um, it's, it's not the same answer for every leader. For some, it's that, you know, they don't know how to say no or be strategic with their time. And so they just let lots of things on their calendar. For others, they don't know how to delegate. Um, for others, they, they uh, I'll, I'll say, take on too much burden of the consequence of every decision, uh, as if as if they were a video game controller and they were the only thing that that determined that outcome. And, and so, first, I think it's important to figure out why that is, um, and then we chart a course out of that. Um, but regardless, I'll, I'll say some of the more common answers are leaders that that don't practice what I call time leadership. And you know, time management is once there's a set of things on my calendar and on my plate, I manage my time effectively to get it done. Time leadership is deciding what should be on my plate and what shouldn't. And I think good leaders practice good, good time leadership. Um, and, and from there, then it's building the right capabilities and systems to make sure that my team is as capable as they can be and that I'm actually spending my time on the right stuff. Uh, if I effectively delegate and frame things for the team, build good management systems that really drive when I need to be involved and when I don't, then I can, I don't want to say sit back because it's not, this isn't about being passive, but then I can, I can sort of let the triggers drive me to be engaged in the right place in the right time and in the right way. And when leaders don't have that, when, when they don't have that sort of fundamental structure in place, they just, they don't know if things are okay or not. So they spend a boatload of time just running around looking. And they kind of know there's problems out there. So they just try to ask everything, look at everything, talk to everybody, and hopefully find the right problems to work on. And that's, you know, there, there's no way out of that unless you start changing, changing how you work. Yeah, I think that sometimes it, it seems to me that, you know, they got to this leadership role by working really hard and doing a lot of things and showing how effective they can be. And then when they get to that leadership position where perhaps you have a good, strong executive staff and, and talented people around you, uh, you don't know how to delegate because you're just kind of used to doing it yourself all the time. Or maybe it's that, you know, I can always do it better, so I'll just do it type of attitude. Yeah, there's a... Uh... 
you know, we take a super worker, we make them a supervisor, and, and that's a big leap for people. And then, you know, to make matters worse, um, uh, they, they, they become a manager of managers. And, and to me, that's an even bigger leap for most people. Uh, they, they really don't know how to make that leap effectively. And there's sort of an underlying fear usually of dropping a ball. Right? There's a lot of balls in the air. I don't want to drop any balls. I don't want to make any mistakes. And, and so we, we try to micromanage. We try to cover a lot of ground thinking if I, if I, if I just put in enough hours, I'll, I'll, I'll make sure everything's okay. But it's a false, it's a false sense of security. Um, you can't be everywhere. And in fact, you're actually making things worse because your, your efforts to put your arms around everything, uh, essentially, it, it does more than this, but it, at a minimum, disempowers your team. And the probability of mistakes when you're not looking are higher. Uh, and so you're, you're much better off building a system of work, building a set of rules, building a set of capabilities and behaviors that, uh, that your target state should be to, to set it up, point the team in a direction, and then wait for them to tell you that they need some help. And it, it never actually quite works that way, but we should be inching our way closer to that and closer to that. And I, and I think good leaders know you know, they think, I'll, I'll say new leaders think the risk is between making a mistake or not making a mistake. But more experienced leaders uh, realize that the real gap is, or the real contrast is probably a difference between their team making a mistake and owning and learning from me, and them making a mistake and their team not learning uh, uh, and growing from it. So, you know, they much rather, if mistakes are going to be made inevitably, They'd rather let their team make mistakes and learn and grow from them than try to own all the mistakes themselves. Yeah, and related to that, you know, problems happen, as we all know, uh, but they're often seen problems, they're often seen as failures. So how do you create cultures that, that learn and grow from failures uh, as opposed to avoiding it because uh, we're afraid of failing? Well, I think the first thing is uh, sort of adopting a mantra that no problem is a problem. And... You know, I've worked with a few leaders in my in my time who, who you know insist they don't have any problems, and that's just garbage, right? It's just, of course, there's problems. You're just not acknowledging them, admitting to them. Uh, you know, the, lacking transparency or 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 uh, 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 clarity. So when you get past that, then you kind of realize that oh, problems are there. Let's embrace them. The second is is another phrase that we like to throw around, which is uh, be hard on the process and not hard and easy on the people. Um, and that is fundamentally that if we look at why a failure or a problem occurred, let's first look at the process, how the work is designed and done. Let's maybe next look at the management system. Did management, did we... <laughs> set you up for failure by not giving you clear direction or whatever it might be. And then, and only then, do we look at the person. Um, and, and it's not that people can't fail. It's not that people don't contribute to the problem, but, you know, that's not where the leverage is. That's not where the, the promise of eliminating future problems are. So we, you know, when we focus on the person, we say things like, please be more careful and try harder next time, which sort of assumes that, 
we weren't trying hard this time. Yeah. Not a very effective solution. So we really look for, um, uh, you know, trying to change uh, how we react and, um, and where the leverage is in terms of actually making, making real progress. You know, you're an author of a book called People Solve Problems. And um, uh, what's your vision for, uh, for that book? Who, who's the audience and, and what message do you want them to get out of that? Well, it's, it's um, the, the core of, of who the book is for it is really for leaders who want to build a different uh, kind of organization. They want to build more scalability, more resilient uh, more able to overcome uh, the challenges they face. So that's why there's sections in the book on things like coaching and the role of the leader and, and even setting the culture through the behaviors. Um, I, I certainly believe that, you know, aspiring leaders, people who want to become leaders will learn something from it. And at some level, I think people that are just trying to be better problem solvers will learn something from it. Um, but, but really, the, the book was written for leaders who are trying to lead in a different way and build a different kind of organization. It's really why um, I asked Bob Bruggerworth, uh, who's CEO at Corvo, to write the forward. Because I, you know, I, I have a lot of other friends who are famous authors and maybe uh, bring some, some authorship uh, brand recognition to the book and, and, and make it you know, show up better in search engines and probably write great forwards too. But the, the, I wasn't writing it for other lean authors. I wasn't writing it for lean consultants or uh, change agents. It's really writing it for the leaders that, that just want to build a better team, a better organization, a better company. Uh, and, and Bob was a, you know, Bob is an example of that. And that's, it's why I thought, let me, let me ask somebody, to write the forward who really represents the type of people I'm writing this for. That's great. And if people listening today are interested in that book, uh, how can they find it? Well, I can find it uh, at, at, at jflinch.com. Uh, we have a book page there. It has links to all the different, uh, different platforms, but you know, for, for most people hopping on Amazon, uh, they can get it in paperback, hardback, Kindle or audio book. And, you know, all, all options are available straight through Amazon. And now this isn't your first book, is it? Uh, you've written other books as well? Yeah, I, I wrote uh, The Hitchhiker's Guide to Lean uh, over 15 years ago uh, with my co-author Andy Carlino. And that was a, a little, uh, you know, a, I would say a narrower book, but a, a, a very topic-focused book on, on lean transformation. And it had, it, it's done well for a long time. I kept saying that I, you know, people keep returning to that content. So I didn't feel the need to write another book. Um, but, uh, you know, so it's, it's taken me a while to get around to another book. I've also just been terribly busy in various different roles in the last uh, 15 years. So uh, finally got around to it. Um, and, and for me, writing is first and foremost, an exercise in sharpening my own thinking and, so, you know, I, I would write, I wrote a column for years for this very reason is I, I, I get to really figure out what I believe yeah. <laughs> as a coach. And, and so that's sort of my first reason for writing it. And, and it really was just time for me to, uh, to, to take a bunch of ideas that were floating around in my head and, and 
try to clearly articulate what my what my current thinking was. So that was kind of how this this whole exercise began. And you know, we're all so busy with lots of things on our plate. How do you find time to carve out uh, enough time to write a book and get it done in a reasonable amount of time? Well, I think it, it depends on everyone's style. Um, yeah, I know there's people out there that say, write a little every day. And and that's good advice if that works for you. For me, it doesn't. I, I kind of need to get into a flow and a rhythm. And I don't write well in my office. Um, that's where I have meetings and I do emails and I, I'll say I think little thoughts <laughs> um, to some degree. And so I, I would carve out multiple days at a time. I'd go up to a, a cottage in the mountains and I'd do research and I'd outline and I'd brainstorm and I'd write. And so it was multiple trips, uh, but I took multiple trips up um, where I you know, didn't have great internet connection, couldn't have a lot of meetings, didn't have a lot of meetings, and just stayed with the topic long enough and deep enough. And, and that, that's what works best for me. Um, Interestingly, my first book, in a similar way, um, I wrote most of it out of Starbucks. And, and the reason was because then Starbucks did not have Wi-Fi. So it was a place I could go where I wouldn't be tempted to hop on email. And uh, I could sit there with a coffee and just write for a few hours without interruption. So uh, that's not quite the Starbucks we know uh, today. But um Similar ideas. Let me disconnect from the rest of my work and focus on the writing. Yeah, that's really interesting. Thanks for sharing that. What is your definition of coaching? I mean, when are you a teacher? When are you a manager? When are you a coach? Yeah, so I, I, uh, I've had a long career as a, on the side as a soccer coach. And I, I love soccer coaching analogies uh, in particular because uh, I love the sport, but also there are things that can resonate because they're a little more uh, tangible than some of the, I'll say the managerial coaching and things like that that we do. And, and so I describe it in this way. If, if I'm managing and coaching a team and it's late in the game and there's a player out of position, if I tell them where to go, I'm managing the situation, I'm managing the outcome, I'm managing the risk. Uh, I'm managing the performance and I'm trying to get the best result I can. And if it's a, an important game with 10 minutes left, I'm probably going to make that decision. It's probably the right decision. If I, if I tell them where to go and tell them why, I've become a teacher. I, I've made them smarter. In addition to fixing the problem, I've made them smarter, but I've made them smarter in my definition of the answer to where they should be. Here's my system of play and here's my answer to that question. Where should you be? And then I'm being a teacher, but I'm being a teacher of my content. Uh, if I ask them, where should you be? I let them make a decision, experience the results, and then perhaps when they come off the field, help them reflect on whether that worked or not and why. Now I'm a coach. And the reason is I'm helping them learn how to think. I'm helping them learn how to problem solve. I'm helping them learn how to learn. And it's about their journey and their answers and their conclusions and their earned, you know, earned experience. And, and that really is when I'm a coach. Um, and the reason I think this definition is important is there's a lot of people uh, with good intentions who will throw their knowledge out there, you know, in, in what I would, in what I describe often as drive by coaching, right? Just dropping little pearls of wisdom all over the place 
And in most cases, that's, that's not really coaching, that's teaching. And, and there's nothing wrong with that, but we shouldn't recognize, we, we should recognize it for what it is, which is you taking your knowledge and imparting it on someone else. That's different than, you know, charting our own course, earning our own knowledge. And what coaches do is enable people to do self-discovery. And, and that's the kind of knowledge, that earned knowledge that really pays, pays off for someone over and over and over again. It puts them on a different trajectory. And that's a great analogy. I think it, it explains it really well. And, and you're right. I mean, if, if you tell somebody something, give them the answer, then the chances of them remembering that uh, maybe aren't so good. But if you uh, guide them and lead them and have them come up with the answer on their own, that's something that they can hold on to and they'll usually remember in the long run. Yeah, and it also assumes that um, you know we have all the answers, right? So, right. like, we, yeah. we may have. I mean, I'm 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 as arrogant as the next guy. I, I believe I have a lot of good answers, but if 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 I believe that I'm just going to take my answers and give them to someone else, it kind of assumes I'm, I'm I'm not only mostly right, I'm always right. And instead of really allowing the person to 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 take take some of my knowledge, be a teacher sometimes. And then also, you know, add to it their own through their own experience. And, and ultimately, I think that's how we we grow as a, a pair of individuals uh, and not just uh, not just one of us. Yeah, absolutely. How important is reflection in an evolving leader? Um, so there's a there's a, a, a quote that uh, I can't really find who actually said it but it stuck with me for a long long time and that is experience is not what you've been through it's what you take away from it that counts and 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 that really resonated with me that it doesn't matter if you have five years or 30 years the person with five years that really studies what they're going through that really studies their experiences and extracts knowledge from it extracts lessons and insight from it that is person is more experienced than a person with 30 years of time that just goes through the motions. And so reflection, I believe, is, is, is perhaps the most important leadership skill uh, because it's how, we, it, it's, it's how we get better. It's how we learn to learn. It's how we uh, make adjustments to ourselves, to our systems, to our team, to our organization by looking at what's what's working that we want to double down on and strengthen and standardize and what's not that we need to adjust and, and correct and, and modify. And so, so everybody's, you know, routine and process is a little different. Some people reflect daily, some weekly, some annually, um, you know, Bill Gates was famous for going away for a whole week to, uh, you know, read stuff and think big thoughts. That was his, his, his annual investment in, in reflection um, I've returned to a small daily, uh, and it's not really what works best for me. I'm just trying to sort of shake, shake things up a bit, but I've returned to a small daily reflection. And, and so you've got to find the right mechanism that works for you, but it's the, the practice that's, that's so important. Yeah. And how can a leader work that reflection into their, you know, uh, modus operandi? How, how can they, you know, with, with this, uh, busy life that executive leads and all that's on the plate, um, it sounds good, but practically it sounds, uh, seems uh, uh, just another thing to do. Yeah, it, it does. And, um, and 
you know, I, th I think a lot of people think of this as sitting down with a journal and writing for, you know, an hour and stuff like that. And that works great too. But the, the, the body is, if you just focus the body's attention, it's incredibly powerful to learn. And here's an exercise people can do is, you know, get up out of their chair and stand on one leg. It's a good chance they can do it. Now try to think your way through standing on one leg, you know, you know, tell your body how to shift and lean and you can't do it. It's, it's because your body is actually more adaptable to that learning than, than our brain is. So, so to me, just anything that, that gets you focused on what's working and what's not without putting a lot of analysis into it is good enough. It's good enough. It's not, not excellent, but it's a great start. So there's an old practice that, and this is what I've actually returned to uh, most recently, but I actually learned it, not directly, but from Benjamin Franklin. Uh, Benjamin Franklin had, I think, 13 or some number of virtues that, they, that he valued. And he would give himself a score every single day, just rate himself on that. Now, it doesn't need like a big cause and effect diagram and all sorts of analysis. It's just awareness of how you're doing on a particular trait. So, so I've written down, you know, five things that are important to me. And, um, and then I give myself, I actually give myself a score out of four. Uh, so one, two, three, or four. And the, the reason I do that is that uh, I found myself on a five-point scale. It's like, eh, I'll, I'll give myself a, a, a middle score. That's an easy answer, right? Rather than try to be, no, was I better than average or worse than average? Force myself to really you know, give my, uh, say where I was instead you know, to me, a three was kind of a punt or uh, ignoring the question. So, so I have a, a set of just five things that every day I, I give myself a number on and I don't write anything else, but just while I'm putting the numbers down, I become aware of why that number is the number. And over time patterns start to emerge and improvement opportunities become more visible and, it just makes me more aware of how I'm operating as an individual. Yeah, that's a, that's a great system. Uh, define uh, heuristics and, and how they are used in business. Yeah, so heuristics, another word is rules of thumb or decision rules. Um, they are uh, ways in which we improve our speed and consistency. Uh, the whole idea is, of heuristics is that if we took every decision that came across our plate and tried to analyze it and think through it and be very, you know, be very smart and analytical about every decision, we would, we would be paralyzed, right? There's no way we can operate that way. And so we, we live with, you know, with heuristics all the time, right? Uh, you know, what's a good breakfast food to eat? And, um, you know, what time should I go to bed? We, we don't sit there and kind of go, how tired am I? And, you know, we don't analyze what time to go to bed. We probably have some rules. We break them or, or follow them. But, you know, when we break them, we, we pay for it and it becomes pretty easy uh, to, to understand where those come from. So the heuristics are, are, are right enough that helps us be speed up and be more consistent. So, uh, you know, a, a good example of, of one is uh, uh, measure, uh, measure twice and cut once. Um, do, you always, do you always need to do that? No, you don't, you don't always need to, to do that. There's a lot of times you can get away without it. But rather than guess which times are which, just 
measure twice, cut once, and follow that every single time. On a, on a leadership standpoint, so I'll, I'll give an example of sort of a personal productivity one. I, I find a really useful heuristic is don't start your day in your inbox. Um, if you start your day in your inbox, you are now following other people's agenda. And that, that time leadership I talked about earlier about deciding how to spend your time is, 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 uh, is vacated. Now it's, now it's up to other people because your inbox will, will drive your day. So I, I start my day at first of my calendar, make sure I am prepared for every meeting coming up that day. And then next on my to-do list or project list to make sure I know what my priorities are. And then I'll pop into my inbox. Now that doesn't work for everybody, but I think it's a, it, it, it works most of the time and it works for most of the people that if you don't start your day in your inbox, it's a good rule of thumb or heuristic to make yourself more focused and, uh, and effective. Yeah, it makes a lot of sense. So let's get back to building cultures a little bit here. So what does a world-class cult, cl culture look like in the post-pandemic business environment that we're going to be in here soon? Well, yeah, I, I think in particular, uh, if we focus on post-pandemic, I, I believe there is uh, a, a culture of uh, agility, I, which is a broad term, but face the problem in front of you is more specific. Uh, you know, I think post-pandemic, we have a lot of things, a lot of rules have changed. A lot of things have been made less stable and I think are going to stay that way for a lot of reasons. And so uh, whether it's a market that it's going to move, you know, to and fro any way you want at any time, uh, tastes are going to change, uh, supply chains are going to be disrupted, then, you know, I need to be resilient to, you know, deal with the problem in front of me and not get stuck in my plan. Um, use my plan as a guide and then solve the problem I have in front of me. So I believe building the behavior of facing the problems very honestly and very quickly uh, is, is a, an important part of a go-forward culture. I think also it's... Uh, a culture of empowerment, but not in the broad sense, really allowing people to start to craft their engagement with the organization. Uh, this means, this is not just about work from home or don't work from home or how many days do you work from home or working hybrid. It's, it's uh, I think we've set, a, I think there's new expectations for people wanting work to go a certain way. They kind of realize there's certain things they shouldn't have to put up with. Um, there are certain things they don't want to put up with and, and the expectations have changed. Um, I think a lot of us went through life thinking, well, this is just the price of entry. This is doing the things I'm doing is just necessary uh, in order for me to do what I actually love. And, and now I think we found that there's a lot of, a lot of this stuff maybe wasn't necessary. And so, I think being more aware of the working conditions, the working environment, uh, the ecosystem, and the people having a say in how their work goes, I think is a big part of post-pandemic cultures. Not everywhere, not at every company and not in every job, but it's, I think there's a, a big cultural shift that's moving in that direction. You know, we, we, we talk about the great resignation and, and uh, or the great shift um, and, 
you know, it's, it's some of its retirements, some of its, uh, you know, people uh, not having a dual income family trying to support their kids as they're, you know, working as they're going back and forth between hybrid school and in-person things like that. So there's some, there's some shifts that involve changing who's working, but you know, some of it is people just saying, you know what, I'd rather enjoy my work and make less money. And there are some underlying trends there where, where a lot of people are, you know, just, they're just not willing to put up with what they were willing to put up with before. And they're willing to take the hit on pay for it. If that's what it takes, they'd rather not. But uh, if you give them the opportunity to help shape their work environment, um, there's a, a big opportunity for, for building a superior culture. You know, I think one of the big aha moments uh, during the pandemic was this, that no one would have predicted it, but uh, supposedly productivity actually increased when people worked from home. So I get that part of it as far as the production of the tasks and the things you do. I wonder about the teamwork aspect of it, though, if we go to more of a work at home or more of a hybrid system. Are you concerned that uh, that teamwork approach uh, will suffer with um, without the face-to-face -face meetings and so on that uh, went on so much before? I'm concerned, but I'm more concerned that leaders won't uh, embrace uh, the changes and make them work for them. I, I don't believe it has to be true. So I, I believe there's three things that happen in the workplace that don't easily happen remotely. One is just a sense of connection. Um, you know, am I connected to my teammates and my fellow workers and do I, do I have their back? Well, I, I don't need to be with them every day for that to be true. Um, but I need to come together in a way that allows us to, you know, look each other in the eye and pat each other on the back every once in a while and, and have that sense of connection. And companies that had a stronger sense of connection, I think, really benefited in the first six months of the pandemic when you were basically sort of withdrawing from that uh, bank account over the first six months. And they could just easily make that switch. But, um, but it's going to take every you know, being together every single day. The, the next is, a, is, is the culture. Culture shaping is easier in person, um, but it's not impossible remotely. And so I think you have to, as leaders, have to pay more attention to how they shape culture remotely and then leverage their in-person moments as well as possible. And then the third thing is what I would call the unstructured collaboration. I think structured collaboration can happen just as effectively with remote work if you build the right systems and structures around it. But the unstructured collaboration is when you sort of just pop, pop in next to somebody, pop your head in their office or catch them in the hallway and have a conversation and grab a whiteboard and some ideas start to you know, percolate and you go somewhere. Which is why I, I think this is, this is one of the things I'm noticing as people are returning to the office uh, for those who had left it, is that they're using the go-to-the-office time to run meetings. And I think that's a mistake. Uh, you know, you're going to have, you're probably still going to have a Teams meeting because not everybody's there. And now you have a bunch of people sitting in a conference room having a very static, boring meeting still in the Teams. We, we know how to run a Teams meeting or a Zoom meeting or whatever uh, remotely. Then do your meetings when everybody's at home. Make the time that you're in the office open unstructured time. Allow for that time to be in the same place, 
have random conversations, allow for random collaboration. And so I think, I think a lot of people are getting the return to the office backwards in terms of how they leverage the time. So I don't believe it has to suffer in a hybrid work environment, um, I, but I, I believe we have to rethink the rules and be very deliberate about why we're doing what we're doing. And, and my, my bigger fear is that leaders are going to just, well, for lack of a better phrase, they're going to be lazy about that. They're just going to, in the office, do what they used to do instead of be more thoughtful about it. Yeah, that's great insight. How, what do companies struggle with the most when they try to improve their culture from an intentional perspective? Well, I think uh, the first thing that they struggle with is the idea that um, the idea that they can. I mean, when I when I first talked to some leaders about culture change, they're like, "Yeah, culture change is hard. It could be something easier." I'm like, yeah, it's it's hard. That's that's why they pay you the big bucks. Um, but the, so so what it needs is a plan. Right? You need a plan about how you are going to show up and how you are going to create experiences for people to create the culture that you want. So the, the first ingredient of the plan is to actually articulate the behaviors that you want. Um, I, I think people tend to be very vague. You know, we used to, uh, years ago, you know, everybody, the hot thing was everybody had to have corporate values. And I believe at one point there was a study that 48% of the Fortune 500 included respect and integrity as two of their corporate values. Um, well, one of those companies was Enron. Right. Uh, yeah, respect and integrity. You know, it, the, these were these were for the the lobby, for the customers, or for the website, the, the version of the lobby today. They weren't really things that we lived. And nobody was coming to work, you know, saying, well, I was going to work out of integrity, but it's a corporate value, so instead I'll work in integrity. The, the culture should be things that, you know, might not be natural, that might not always be aspirational, that, that sort of really shape how are we going to operate differently. And so you have to articulate the things that uh, you really want to see in, in, in the behavior, and particularly what look for what I would call gateway uh, gateway behaviors, things that lead to other things. So, for example, if you know, live a healthy lifestyle. Well, that's very ambiguous and broad, and I don't know what I, you know, whatever day of the week it is, I don't know what that means. But go for a walk every day. That's a very tangible gateway behavior that leads to something bigger. So, first, you need to articulate the behaviors that you want, and then second, you need a plan. How are you as a leader? going to uh, show up and create experiences for people. And um, yeah, I don't go a lot into that in, in People Solve Problems, um, a, a book by my good friend, Jeff Grimshaw and Tanya Mann uh, called Five Frequencies is, a, is, a, is a, a great deeper dive into what that plan looks like. Um, and, and so that's, that's fun stuff. And I've, I've used different models. That's, that's kind of my preferred model is what, what, what they do in the five frequencies, but it's how do you show up, right? How do you show up as a leader from the questions that you ask to the decisions that you make to what you recognize people for? These are the ways that you send signals to the organization what you, what you want and what you value. Um, and, and so I, you need to be deliberate about that. It's, it's hard. It's not complicated, but it is hard. And, um, 
and and I think that hardness is why why a lot of people uh, you know shy away from even bothering because they're like, yes, yeah, I'll just change the incentive system and and we'll get we'll get somewhere. Uh, but but it's if you're if you're deliberate about it, focused about it, consistent about it. Um, there's, a, there's an awful lot that can be done by leaders to shape their culture. And also just use language that people can relate to, as you mentioned earlier, like take a walk every day. That's more of a uh, action-oriented uh, uh, value, so to speak, than some imagery that, you know, is like on the Hallmark show or something, you know. So it's just something that you can actually see and, and, and then carry through on uh, in, a, in an actionable way. Yeah, language is important, and and sometimes I, you know, I, I don't want to get everybody twisted around the axle around, you know, picking this word or that word or wordsmithing a, a press release or something like that. But language matters, um, and and so, you know, choosing your words in a way. I, I recently saw an organization that had 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 started hybrid work, um, and. And, and but it was sort of there's we're going to have you in the in the office a few days a week, but not every day. And then with the the, the current spread of cases, they said uh, they actually issued a communication that said we're no longer going to require those days. Well, that was a poor choice of words, in my opinion, because it basically implied the only reason you were going to the office is because we we were making you. Um, uh, that that's a you know we, we there's be, there was a better choice of words there. Yeah. Uh, there's an or, organization I, I used to be involved in. And my 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 family name is is at least on the door called Flinchball Engineering, um, and, uh, and 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 uh, the company went to 100 percent employee owned, and they made a very it was it's a very cool culture that they built because they they made a very conscious use of the word shareholder. Right, so if you got if you got your paycheck or a benefits announcement in the mail at home, it would it would it would use you your title was shareholder, and if you were brought up to stage on a, a little celebration of service years, you were introduced as a shareholder. They used the word shareholder over and over and over again uh, without without needing class. They were signaling to everybody that you are. You're a shareholder in this company. You're you're an owner in this company, and that, along with other things, other things that they did to help reinforce that, they built a culture of ownership. There's a lot of employee-owned companies that don't have a culture of ownership, but these guys did, and 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 the language was a big part of that. How they they use those words very deliberately. Yeah, it's a great example of just driving the thought of uh, ownership mentality. And, and we all know that if you own something, you just look at it differently. So uh, that's a great example. What are the newer generations looking for in company cultures? So, you know, as we design companies for the future and, and um, you know, the baby, baby boomers are phasing out and, you know, Gen Xers are getting a little older. So what are the newer generations looking for in company cultures? Well, I'll give you two answers to that. The first is that uh, we have to be careful about not overgeneralizing generations, and because uh, uh, individuals are different, and uh, I've seen a lot of mistakes, even with my own generation, of of well, here's what you guys want. It's like, well, not really. I, I want this. I want something very different. And if you if you get if you get too sloppy with it, then you end up you know sort of alienating 
half the people at least, if not if not most. That being said, I think a lot of the, the younger generation coming into the workforce and starting their careers, they've seen what happened to my generation and my parents' generation with the idea of a promised future, right? You're, we're going to have a career path and you're going to put in your time and then, and then your work will matter. And then they see, you know, whether, whether it was extreme, like you got laid off when you're 50 or, or you're 60 and you're still working hard and you hate your job. It's, it's like well, th this promise, this work for a promise of the future doesn't make sense. And so I think one thing is people want their work to matter now. Now that doesn't mean promotion. I think that's the, that's the generational gap speaking is it doesn't mean, you know, Oh, they need to be promoted. Now they want their work to matter. Now they want to do meaningful work. You know, if it's, if it's stupid work, they'll, can, can we just figure out how to code that? You know, just, just let's code that. And, and then let me go solve a problem. And so you know, I, I think they, they want their work to be meaningful and they want to continue to learn and grow. And again, that doesn't mean they need a job promotion to learn and grow, but they need diversity. They need experience. They need exposure. They need opportunities to immerse themselves in to learn and grow. And this is why I think, you know, one of the reasons that building a culture of, of empowerment, of engagement, of, of, of coaching are, are all inherently productive things with uh, uh, today's culture. I think the other, uh, the other thing that matters is, you know, a sense of purpose. And for some, that's a purpose, the purpose of the entity, right? What is the purpose of this organization? Are we out there to save lives or solve racism or you know, solve world hunger? Then, you know, then I think you have an easy connection to a sense of purpose, but it's not the only way to have a sense of purpose. I mean, you could you could make cardboard boxes. You could, you know, uh, you you could pick up garbage. But but what is the purpose in how we work? And and I think that can be just as meaningful to people. Not just is what does the company do matter? Um, I think that's that's part of it. But how we work and is there purpose in that? I think I think that can always matter. And, and people don't, they don't just want a job. They want to know that their work matters. And even if it's just to make their fellow teammates' lives better, that's, that, that's a pretty good start for having a sense of purpose. Absolutely. Well, Jamie, usually at this time in the interview, I always ask my guests this uh, same question. And that question is, in relation to leadership, what is a pearl of wisdom that you can leave us with today? Well, I'll... Um, I'll return to the something we talked about a little earlier and, and, and try not to be redundant with it, but um, the idea that experience is not what you've been through, it's what you take from it. And uh, what I see is that a lot of people aren't willing to take risks to earn their experience. You know, they're, they're you know, like, oh, I, I, I'd learn more in that job, but, but it, it doesn't pay as much. Well, okay, then, then you don't really care about what you learn in your job as much as you care about what you make today. And, and so experience is what you take from it, but it's also what you put yourself into. And, and so I think, you know, we have to take responsibility for our own learning path. Um, and whether that's uh, jobs that we take, assignments that we take, uh, side projects that we take on, uh, coaches that we seek out, advisors that we seek out and reflection that we take the time to do. 
Uh, learning is the most valuable currency for a leader. Put all those things together and make it about learning. Uh, Henry Ford once said, uh, anyone who stops learning is dead, whether they're eight or 80. And that's a principle I've tried to live my life uh, by uh, the whole way through. But individuals can't wait for someone to take responsibility for their learning for them. They've got to take it on through their experiences, through the reflection, and how they how they embrace what's in front of them. Yeah, I think that's an excellent point. And you know, any biography of a successful person you read, or any people that you know well that have done very well in their careers, I mean, there's almost always some risk involved. There's almost some step that was taken or an opportunity that others didn't see. And, and, uh, so I do think that, uh, you know, you don't need to be blindly taking huge risk, but on the other hand, if you just never take a risk and it's always a status quo, then it's hard to move in in a positive direction. That's right. You don't, you don't need to bet the farm. You don't need to take out a second mortgage, but, um, if, if, if you stay where you think things are safe, then I think your future isn't very safe. Um, so, you know, sometimes being safe is, is to keep learning. That's the best way to be, to sort of uh, make yourself resilient and safe for the future uh, because you're able to learn, which is the, the one skill that's going to matter no matter what. Yeah, I couldn't agree with you more. Jamie, thank you so much. Uh, this has been a real pleasure talking with you uh, about uh, uh, these, these concepts and culture. And then you just had an amazing career. And uh, thanks for sharing your thoughts with us today. Thank you, Steve. I enjoyed the conversation. Okay. Well, take care and uh, have a good rest of your day. Thank you. Be well. Thank you for listening to another episode of Profiles in Leadership. To listen to all my interviews, subscribe to Profiles in Leadership with Steve Anderson on Apple Podcasts, iTunes, and many other popular podcast platforms. Some of these interviews are on video, and you can search YouTube for Profiles in Leadership with Steve Anderson. You can also access the entire library of interviews on my website, orange.coaching.com, and that is orangetheword.coaching.com, and go to the Media Center and click on Podcasts or Video Gallery. You can also enter the website from pilpodcast.com. Thank you.